Welcome to Radio Finance, the podcast that helps you understand the transformative developments taking place in the world today. I truly believe the more time we spend on digital, the stronger will the NFTs be. So my fundamental question here for every single banker who is listening to this is who do you think is really accelerating digitalization? Is it your chief innovation officer? Is it your CEO? Or is it COVID-19? Dushan Stojanovic, good to meet you again, my good friend. Uh, and it's been a long time since we had a discussion of any kind, Mr. Serial Entrepreneur. Uh, founder of uh, um, True Global Ventures. I, I think you're running into your third fund right now, or is it your fourth fund? Um, and, and doing very, very well. Uh, how has things been with you? Yeah, thanks, Emmanuel. Yeah, it's good to talk again. It was a while ago. And yes, you're right. It, it is uh, already our fourth one. So time, time uh, runs quickly. And yes, life right now is uh, actually pretty good. You know, every time I, I catch up with you, the world is changing and uh, lots of new things happening. The conversation I would like to have with you today uh, is on Anywoka, your latest uh, investment, 88888888. That's a nice number. Basically, that's a very uh, good number that you've raised uh, for Anywoka, uh, which is on the back of its business uh, in supporting uh, non-fungible uh, tokens. Uh, which is all of the rage at the moment. Uh, why don't you start by telling me uh, what you're up to with Animoca? Well, first of all, I, I think we should, you know, congratulate Yatsu, who is the, the founder and cha- chairman to get it, Rob Young, for the 88, 800, whatever, eight numbers, um, million dollars raise, um, and what they've achieved, uh, especially, uh, you know, in terms of educating the whole world since roughly 2017 and 18, what the non-fungible token is. Um, so in those days, 2017 and 18, if you remember, um, you know, there was something called CryptoKitties. Basically, a lot of people had made some money on Bitcoin and Ethereum and wanted to buy unique cats. That's why it's called CryptoKitties. So you could buy basically a unique cat. And Ethereum at the time got congested because there was a lot of people who wanted to buy this and gas fees uh, went up. And then actually it kind of faded away. Animoca and Yap and all the others in the team, we were stubborn as their um, investors. And we believed that that would actually really change the world way more than the internet and mobile has. Uh, so we, basically the team there has spent enormous amounts of time of educating the whole world on what is non-fungible token. We, we didn't even use the word non-fungible token until recently. But in those days, we tried to explain that the non-fungible token is you know, a piece of land in a game that you can buy and that you own uh, and that you can build something on and then you can play the game. And at some stage you can sell, you know, everything you built in your second life or in your game and like basically exit the game and get some money uh, for that. And it, it took ages to basically educate and educate and educate. Um, there were a couple of milestones in that company's life. Number one was that they, get the, they got the CryptoKitties license for, um, for China. Uh, probably you know that Dapper Labs, which is behind NBA Top Shot, uh, what were the originals, uh, original guys from Vancouver who actually created CryptoKitties. Uh, Animoca got the license in China. And then there was a big breakthrough in May 2009. The first Formula One licensed um, NFT was sold for $108,000. In May 2019, that was huge. 
uh, you know, we couldn't believe our eyes that somebody would pay $108,000 for, for basically a digitalized Formula One car that for us, you couldn't basically use, but only brag about. And, you know, the, the guy who bought it in May 2019 is the same person who bought Beeply for 69.3 million in the digital art that most people have heard in, 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 in the world now. But that was kind of the breakthrough, I would say, for Animoca. And after that, there's been a lot of things that they've done since May 2019. But step by step, they have, you know, gone into one of the top global players in NFTs uh, and now have about 350 people across the world based out of Hong Kong, a big uh, development team in Argentina. But they also have very strong presence, both in New York and San Francisco in the US, where they have acquired NFT collectible uh, companies uh, last year. So they are pretty, pretty strong across the world. Uh, both when it comes to sports NFTs and when it comes to gaming NFTs. So Animoca is not a platform. It's actually an owner of uh, NFT assets. Uh, is, that what, you know, is that what it is? Or would you like to correct me on that? Yeah, so Animoca is a lot of things, right? So uh, they have really played an important uh, play in, ecos in the ecosystem. That they are the owner and not the marketplace, but some of the companies that they actually have are also marketplaces. And they have also invested five years ago in OpenSea, which is, you know, the number one marketplace when it comes to NFTs globally. When new things arrive and when new ecosystems are built, it's a little bit difficult to uh, kind of say clearly who is doing what in the ecosystem. And I think one thing that Yat has done extremely well with Animoca is really to make sure that he's part of the whole ecosystem of NFTs, no matter if it's their, his own 100% owned subsidiaries or marketplaces. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm uh, doing this conversation with you for the benefit of old-fashioned people, right? And um, and the the question they would have is for someone to put or some investors to put eighty-eight million dollars on the table. Uh, you know, we look at the balance sheet and say, what does it hold at the moment? It looks to me like Animoca has got real assets, although they are you know virtual assets. But um, you know, they, they, you you have. Uh, your original assets were games, wasn't it? It wasn't the NFTs. Yes, originally, like you said, um, it started um, um, as, a, as a gaming company. Actually, you know, even before 2017, it was basically a, a mobile game for kids. Um, and actually, it uh, got, got kicked out for many different reasons from Apple Store uh, in terms of their positioning there. And then uh, uh, the founders were thinking, what, how can they turn around this company and, and you know, really position it for the future? And yes, you're right. Uh, they have some real assets. These assets are digital assets and they are definitely real uh, because people uh, buy and sell them and own them uh, long-term, short-term. So it is not, uh, trading is not the main driver, but real assets. Tell us a little bit about the tokens that uh, Animoca owns or distributes. Uh, you know, you've got Rev and you've got uh, Sand. So, so Rev is exactly what, what we talked about, which was, you know, that Formula One car, um, which was uh, sold for $108,000 in May 2019. So once you buy a car, you kind of go, well, what are you going to use this car for? What is the utility for it? And in order to get a utility for it, you build a game. So they have built a game around Formula One. And in order to participate in the game and you know, basically be able to pay for the different NFTs, well, you need, you need a payment token. And that's where the token comes in. And so that's Rev. And Sandbox, which uh, Animoca has, is a, a majority owner of, where Trugal Ventures has also invested directly, 
um, is uh, very much built on the lands that I uh, tried to explain. So somewhere in December 2019, which was six months after the Formula One car, we had invested, you know, into Sandbox. And basically, they were explaining this, you know, kind of second life concept, which uh, those people that are my age maybe remember, which was about 20 years ago, that you can basically have, you know, the real world in the digital world. And that's really what they wanted to establish. So what they did in December 2019 was that they sold the first pieces of land, virtual land, for $100,000 in a couple of days. Uh, for us, that was a huge success in those days. And then they sold for $200,000 in February 2020. And then came March 31st, which was really, as you remember, COVID um, more than 50 months ago. People were staying at home and they sold for more than $450,000 in four hours. Boom. That was the breakthrough at that stage. We sold for 800,000 on NFTs in August. And then every single transaction of the land that we were selling, we would be using Ethereum. Now, at some stage we were saying, well, we have such a strong user case that you can buy you know, this land and potentially sell the land. So why don't we also introduce our own payment uh, currency, which is then called SAN token. We kicked out Ethereum and replaced it really with sand. And as of September uh, last year, that exists. So think about it, if you really want to explain it in the old fashioned world, think about it as an eBay and a PayPal. eBay is in this case, the game, and PayPal in this case is the payment mechanism. So it's basically a very strong, you know, relationship between the two. Yeah. And then the rest of the story for Sandbox, probably, you know, uh, they sold NFTs for 3 million in February this year, and then boom, 14th of April, they sold for 6 million in one day. So, and it keeps growing and growing and growing. And it's really making sure that you have true ownership in your game, that you can buy and also import assets from other, other areas. So I told, talked about uh, Metacoven. I talked about, you know, the first guy who sold, bought the Formula One car for $108,000 and now Beeply for, you know, uh, 69.3 million. And basically it answers the fundamental question on what do you do with one of those collectibles once you have bought it? What is the utility for it? That's the kind of answer that Sandbox is trying to give for everybody who's bought NFTs. You can build a basketball stadium. You can build an American football stadium. You can build a museum. You can actually discover music and rock concerts. You can do whatever you want and import the NFTs from anywhere in the world to Sandbox. It's wonderful that you're speaking of, uh, you're talking about uh, uh, Metacoven, right? And uh, and his space is called uh, Metaverse, uh, that universe that he created. Um, I just want to get to the mechanics of uh, Animoca's business. So you have uh, digital assets, you have digital token, uh, you are a platform. Uh, the revenue feed, uh, is it from the capital gains on the token or is it from the gas fee, as they would call it, from the transactions? There are very many, many revenue streams across uh, the platform uh, of Animoca. But to give you one example, I, talked, I, talk, I told you about, you know, all this virtual land. So, for instance, that example I gave to you when uh, they sold for 800000 in August last year, for 3 million in February this year and almost 6 million in April. So that is basically generating revenue. Whenever you buy and sell that piece of land uh, um, in the game, uh, it's generating, depending on the game, some other five to 10% of revenue. So these would be two very, very important revenue streams uh, that is recognized. 
and uh, and the revenue is uh, recognized in the forms of, of the token, uh, the token or the sand token, right? No, no, uh, not, not in this ca case. The token itself is just, I would say, payment mechanism that actually is facilitating all those transactions, right? So that's why the relationship is is so close. What happens is exactly what you pointed out that the more NFTs are being bought and sold in the marketplace, the demand for the token increases, which means actually that the token price potentially increases. So it's obviously linked uh, to the activity, but I would still say it's like eBay, uh, still eBay and PayPal. eBay, you know, they have revenues there for whatever is being traded. And the more eBay, the more it's being traded on eBay, the more the demand for PayPal is there. The eBay, PayPal uh, analogy is so old fashioned. We should just leave that, you know, it's, it's a totally new dimension. Uh, the token is both uh, a store of value as well as a transaction device. And I think that people who don't understand this new universe uh, just want to know whether it's monetizable. Ethereum yeah, so, is far so the, more monetizable. Yeah, so the, dif the difference would be that whatever you did with PayPal, right, uh, you would never be able to, to sell that to somebody else. That's really why the financial systems have been kind of a little bit negative to a lot of these developments. Because really, yeah. those who should be ado adopting it and have started to adopt it is PayPal. You can actually accept Bitcoin. You can buy and sell a lot of stuff in, in the PayPal uh, wallet. So that's really, I, I still think, you know, that's where when this starts to become big, when, when all those traditional players are also starting to be part of the ecosystem. Yes. So the difference between PayPal and the token is that the token is the asset in itself, is an asset in itself. Uh, is the transaction mechanism. And, and interestingly, it's also a, 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 a potentially, um, you know, a technology in itself. Um, you know, there, there are things happening on the token front that are, that are developing and growing. Uh, one interim question. What, what fear do you have as an investor that the NFT phenomenon uh, is no different than an ICO, um, you know, which came and then the regulators sort of pulled it down and put it in its place. It's still there, but it's, uh, it's not as big as it was when it first started. What sense do you have that NFT is not a passing phenomenon? Well, I think you need to look at it. Uh, did ICO solve any global problems? Can you name did, one? Did ICO solve any global problems? It monetized... Well, it, it was an alternative capital raising mechanism. Exactly. So it was a fundraising mechanism, right? So the, in itself, it, it might solve some fundraising potentially problems for some startups, but it didn't solve any fundamental problems in the world. It was a way to finance your companies. So let's compare that to NFTs. Uh, let's take, uh, you know, one of the NFTs um, that we mentioned here, Formula One, as an example. So what is happening now during COVID-19 times? How do you maintain, you know, Formula One races when nobody can go to the stadiums? How do you maintain actually any revenues? How can you even pay, you know, the drivers today if there is no, no sponsors, no audience, nobody's there? So, if, so I think why we've had such an enormous uh, uptake in every single creative industry in NFTs is this enormous need for any creative industry to basically find extra revenues, commercial extra revenues. And that's basically what has happened. So basically you, are, have been, you, you haven't been able to see your Formula One race, but here you have the opportunity to buy your own Formula One car and participate still, even if you can't watch it. And that's a phenomenal extra revenue stream for the F1 industry. 
and basically makes the whole F1 industry survive the COVID-19. Exactly the same analogies for NBA Top Shot and the basketball association there and the clubs. How can they play the, pay the players if uh, there is nobody in the stadium and there are no sponsors money and no merchandise being sold? Again, NFTs come in there. You can own your own players. You can play in, in some of the games that are being produced, but you can already purchase them as a collectible. Same for music. You can't actually go to any music venues. Again, how are the music artists going to survive? So it's basically creating a solving a huge problem for any creative industry right now, and especially during COVID-19. The main reason why the NFTs have exploded during the first quarter of 2021 is actually COVID-19. Now, you would argue that once COVID-19 is over, then maybe that the need for NFTs is going to be gone. You can have different views on it. If you believe that everybody's going to work as much uh, out of office like they did you know, before uh, COVID-19, well, I don't think so. Even if we get into a, a post-COVID-19 world with less infections, I think a lot of people will stay and work partly from home. What do you think is going to is the most likely scenario after, after the pandemic is over, as it tapers down? Most, yeah, I think the most likely uh, scenario uh, after uh, the pandemic is that actually it's going to other areas because we have only started to look at the NFTs in creative industries. We mentioned film, video, music, gaming, art, right? We haven't mentioned even um, you know, non, uh, non-profit organizations, what you can do with the Red Cross in terms of tangible assets that you get in exchange for your donations. I, I truly believe the more time we spend on digital, um, you know, the, the stronger will the NFTs be. So my fundamental right. question here for every single banker who is listening to this is who do you think is really accelerating digitalization? Is it your chief innovation officer? Is it your CEO? Or is it COVID-19? You know, those who have built, you know, bank branches for Deutsche Bank in Europe, they know the answers. The Deutsche Bank branches are not there anymore. So right. I think this change is permanent and it will not be reciprocal. And the NFTs are exactly there. Wherever a digital actually happens and is accelerated, the NFTs can be used in any, every single industry, not just the creative mm-hmm. industries. So the money that Animoca has raised, uh, what is it going into? Is it to buy more assets or is it to develop the technology further? Now, and also related to that, uh, the token itself, I'm very uh, curious about the fact that you have your own token instead of a, you know, Ethereum. Um, how much more work can be done on the token to, to create a utility element into it or into them? You've got several tokens. Before I answer that, just give you one last statistics. Uh, today, we have between seven and 800,000 NFT wallets in the world. We have 135 million crypto wallets. We have 5 billion users of creative industries. So this with the NFTs is really, really just the very start. Now, when we go back uh, to your questions, which is basically uh, saying, um, uh, where is the money going to go for Animoca going forward? They have been very strong in doing acquisitions until now. And I think they are very, very good at turning around companies. So I think uh, one of the main focus areas will be to basically do 100% acquisitions. They have loads in the pipe and will continue to do that. Of course, some of it will go to just purely organic growth to develop further all the games that have been done, including marketing and get the big masses of the 4 billion people to use it. So I would see this would be two 
you know, proceeds of, uh, of the proceeds of Animoca. I'm happy to talk to Animoca for ages, but then you should really do go into an in-depth um, uh, interview with Yatsu, who is the CEO and the founder of Animoca. What I can tell is just from, a, from an investment perspective, where True Global Ventures has been there and supported Animoca, we believe as a fund that uh, this space, which we call entertainment and gaming, is an area that we want to have a first move advantage and we want to continue to invest in that area because we are actually very, very bullish about it because, as I mentioned before, we believe that this is bigger than internet and mobile. So we as a fund basically invest in four areas. One is entertainment and, ga and gaming, which is this NFT pace that we mentioned. Another piece is AI and blockchain. The third one is financial services and blockchain. And the fourth one is infrastructure and blockchain. So let me talk about the fourth one, which is infrastructure and blockchain, and relate that to what we talked about on Imoca. So when you do a transaction, which is pretty big, like the 69.3 million transaction of Beeply, there is still, to, to basically fuel this growth, we're going from 700 to 800,000 wallets to maybe the 135 crypto wallets or the 4 billion gamers that we have there. You know, you need robust, basically, infrastructure. So this actually really works smoothly because there are still a lot of small problems out there in this ecosystem. One of them is very simple. When we do a transaction of 69.3 million cross-border, we need to know who is who, the KYC, the AML piece, and all that. So we believe that identity and basically global identity solutions that can actually fuel together the, the identity solutions in one country to another country and basically making sure that we have the KYC and AML there is going to be more important than ever given this digitalized world and this cross-border payments world, which is ex exactly happening in NFTs. There is nothing more cross-border, I would argue, than actually NFTs. It's definitely not local. So the whole issue about getting digitalized identity is actually... I think the innovation from the NFT is going to push that area. We've been talking for so many years about that all these processes should be digitalized. I'm a true believer that areas like NFTs are going to push that at the forefront of innovation. And I'm very, very bullish about those areas. On the technical front, I mean, I have many questions for you, too, uh, you know, including um, gaming as a platform, uh, as opposed to uh, sitting on uh, HTTP or, you know, the World Wide Web. Uh, you actually create entire communities around yourself for the gaming platform to be a platform in its own right. I think you're right there that the social element of, of um, uh, the gaming platforms are extremely important. And that's why, you know, we got interested in all this, because we basically are all originally from pay the payments industry. And when we see that intersection between social and payments, that's when we get really excited as investors. So one of the main reasons why we invested was this passion for Formula One, for basketball, for the a virtual world, where you, for gamers. When there is such a strong passion uh, and, and you have, have a payment mechanism linked to that, that's when it can become really, really big. So for us, this was like new WeChats, uh, new PayPals, but in the completely digitalized blockchain world. And that was actually one of the main reasons why we invested originally. If you have an exit, uh, and, and actually that's a nice time to... The second part of our conversation, which is uh, private markets, right? But just before we get into Forge, uh, if you have an exit for, for a business like this, uh, what would that exit be? I mean, I, I take it that you have no intention to exit it at any uh, you know, point in the near future, but uh, what are the sort of uh, reasons for exit, not, not uh, mechanisms for exit, whether it's you know, public markets or whatever, but it's more like um, uh, for an investor to enter you know, a very brand new um, platform like this, 
um, you know, uh, at, well, when, when in the platform era, it was easy to see the exits. If you invested in, in Amazon or Grab, there are reasons why you enter any one of the series as they, you know, they go up the line. But, and then you exit at some point where the technology is mature, the market share gets you know, very clearly defined and all that. But for the gaming business, for the token business, uh, what are the exit mechanisms? We are still you know, a blockchain equity fund, so we don't invest in tokens. When it comes to Animoca, uh, you know, we've been uh, supporters there for a, a pretty long time. So we are invested in Animoca from Triple Ventures 2, 3, and 4. And so what that means is when you have a $1 billion valuation, you start to think if you are potentially you know, going to do just a traditional secondary and see if you want to sell what you originally invested. So basically just the standard thinking there. And, and given that this is such a big thing, um, which we believe is NFTs, we decided that Triple Ventures 3 is not actually selling anything at this $1 billion valuation. Obviously not TGV4 because we recently invested. Um, with TGV2, which has started in 2013, yes, you know, we did sell you know, what we originally invested, uh, which is overall peanuts compared to what we have. So we still believe, you know, that that is kind of an interesting part of, uh, you know, that we, we took some uh, money back. But why didn't we take, you know, more money back, like the initial investment from all four funds? Uh, fundamentally, we believe that Animoca can uh, become a $10 billion company because the growth rate they've had in trust revenue, they've gone four times revenue between 2018 and 19, four times between 2019 and 20, and four times now between 2020 and 21. So that is really hyper growth. And given that, um, you know, we basically want to stay uh, longer. And we believe that, you know, this company could have a value of about $10 billion in the next 12 to 24 months. That's how fast it's growing. And that's how exciting this part of this um, industry is from an exit point of view. And, and I, I do want to mention that because it's a little bit of um, both the European and some parts in Asia, a sickness to actually take money, um, except for China, maybe, to take home uh, the initial investment and even exit too early. Um, because people haven't had you know, that much experience with actually unicorns. So people tend to say, okay, I did three times, five times, there is some liquidity, let's sell everything off. But you know, what, I've, what I've seen since Struggle Ventures is really a global partnership. We have European, we have Asian, we have American um, partners, right? And we all know the J-curve, we start you know, with high expectations, then things go a little bit down, we don't reach expectations. One out of 10 actually go in the right way, but actually nine out of 10 go a little bit down and you start at J-curve and then you turn it and you start to scale it up. And wow, that's when most Europeans, especially, but also some Asians want to sell. Whereas the Chinese and the Americans, they just want to ride it all the way through. And, and that's really what I can tell you about the exits that I, I've been really had to you know, um, convince my partners not to sell too early. Uh, and I think that's really important for, for the ecosystem to have you know, some of these extra mega successes, because once you have them, you're more likely to invest heavily once you exit into new companies. And that's where Forge comes into place. So private companies tend to stay private longer and longer, as we all know. It's, it's started to be a US phenomenon. Companies are now average private 10, 11, 12, 13, even 14 years. So people are, are impatient and want to have the exit earlier. And the only way to get it earlier has been basically a secondary sale where a VC comes in and normally they, they take a 30, 40, 50% discount on the latest round. And that happens basically every second, third, fourth year in a company's history. That's not really liquidity. So what Forge is really doing 
is basically matching the sellers that go through this J curve and the buyers who basically want to, you know, buy cheaply because there's loads of upside still there. Animoca is a perfect example. If you look at the names who invested in Animoca with, with Kingsway and many others, they all believe, they believe that they're going to make 10 times now, whereas some of the sellers have maybe made 10 times. So it's a perfect match. And all those trades should really be, you know, done in a professional way. Um, and and that's, that's really what Forge is doing, providing that liquidity between buyers and sellers. And it started with Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, as we all know, 10 years ago. They were the only so-called unicorns in those days. So the history started by trading Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. And then basically after that, there were a couple of years that there weren't that many unicorns. And many people said, this is not really an asset class. Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn was a one-off. Three big companies, it's never going to happen again. Now we have 400 companies that we have been trading in since inception of Forge Post and basically executed $9.1 billion of trades. Only in the last quarter, 700 million. So it's definitely an asset class that is there. And it's now about uh, worth about $2 trillion. Now, uh, just take us back on Forge a little bit. Uh, when was the company set up and uh, what is the funding right now? And you say 400 companies, $9 billion worth of trade uh, so far. Um, now, it is effectively a private market, right? Um, is it, uh, you know, based somewhere? Uh, does it have a concentration pool of investors in um, specific markets? Is it a Silicon Valley, um, you know, oriented company, uh, global Singapore oriented company? Uh, just give us a little bit more of the profile. Yeah, so the history between Forge and SharesPost started in 2010 uh, with SharesPost being founded in, in Silicon Valley. In, in those days, there was a, a, um, a competitor called Second Market, but they sold too early, exactly the J-curve I explained. Uh, Equidata, as it was called, was, was uh, founded in 2013 that later changed name into Forge. Forge Global today is a result of two early movers in Silicon Valley, one called SharesPost and one called Equidata. It would be very, very complimentary for them uh, to merge. Why? Because actually at that stage, SharesPost had about 300,000 individuals accredited investors, whereas Forge had 50,000 mainly family offices um, as investors, about 350,000 investors. So if we were to merge these two pools of investors, which are completely complementary, it could become one unique marketplace with way more liquidity than we have seen ever. So that was basically uh, the fundamentals why we, we agreed roughly year ago to merge the two entities. And then the merger actually after SEC approval and so on only happened November 9th. And then after that, we basically raised money on the same valuation as November 2019. Obviously the merger and the approval took way longer than expected. So the overall fundraise is actually $150 million. It is a US company with the majority of its revenue still in the US and with majority of the companies being traded still in the US. But what this fundraising of $150 million actually brings to the table is number one, the lead investors is Temasek based out of here in Singapore, which we believe is going to open up, you know, for Forge incredibly the whole of Asia and the whole of the world because Temasek is investing everywhere. We hope that it will also be, give some extra benefit to Singapore itself, where I actually live, because the Singapore Stock Exchange has some uh, liquidity, but, but not maybe that much for um, tech companies. So it could be a second liquidity um, venue also here. So it basically opens up really Asia for Forge. And also Deutsche Börse went into this uh, round with 50 million, which is an existing investor. And that opens up Europe completely for the company. 
And lastly, we have also Wells Fargo, obviously, from the US. So, yeah. so we're very, very bullish about the internalization of, um, of uh, the platform. Where does Forge play? The seed and then the series A, B, C, D, E, F, G, you know, like uh, where is its sweet spot? Uh, is it pre-IPO? Uh, if there is such a thing or there is no intention for an IPO, but to keep the yeah. valuations in private hands. Yeah. So if, if you were ask valuation wise, it's, it's somewhere between 250 million and 30 billion. So companies that are valued, um, you know, within that range, um, it needs to be tech companies and they need to be VC backed. So I, I think that would be the three things that kind of really hold it uh, completely to, together. And, mm. and what you will see, uh, also, which is a COVID-19 phenomenon, the f- last 15 months, people have u- learned how to make investments through a Zoom call, uh, not meeting the entrepreneurs and actually doing it on documentation and data. Uh, so here again, the COVID-19 has been a huge accelerator. Um, this quarter, as it says in the press release, you know, they did 700 million of, um, of uh, volume. And I think, if, uh, I think that it's actually 270% more than a year ago. So, so the growth is enormous. Like I said, it's not just because Forge is a fantastic company. It's just that the market is ready for this, for the same kind of fundamental reasons as we expressed. Actually, actually, just before Forge, there, there are any number of companies like Forge that want to be a marketplace for private capital. What is the critical success factor that, that creates the liquidity that finally creates the momentum that that it's able to run on its own because the initial phase is the difficult part as you say you don't know when when is the next thing coming but now you start to see a flow and uh, and then there comes a flow of investors as well yeah so I would at say, which point at which point does a, a company like forge uh, you know make that breakthrough the really momentum breakthrough has been in the last 15 months really but what has been driving that so if you look at it from a seller's point of view if you have you know, invested in all these companies, you're going to go and try to sell your shares where there are buyers. You don't have to go to one, uh, you know, to one shop. You can go to a couple of shops and you're going to go and see where there is a bite. And if you have made 10 times, 20 times or 30 times money, you're pr- probably pretty happy to pay a substantial commission if you can get 10 to 20 times money. So you're basically looking for the best price and you're not that incentivized actually on keeping the commission level low. You just want to make sure that somebody is buying for a high price. So from a seller's point of view, you really want to go where there are mo- most buyers. And that's what Ford Shares Post has. But the so, second piece, yes. on the buyer side, you know, until recently, a lot of people have said, these valuations are crazy. They're so high. Why would I buy you know, in a company that I have so little information on? And that is actually what has fundamentally changed during the last 15 months. That given that we have $9.1 billion of trades and we have data about those, and these are proprietary data points, we can almost like in a private Bloomberg show exactly the data points for every single transaction. For instance, Palantir, when it was um, private, the, the private markets more or less established the pricing of the direct listing because that's the only data points that somebody would have doing a direct listing. So that is really fundamentally what has changed, that there is more proprietary data there and that there are more direct listings. So there's you know, better data points uh, and from there, the, the resolution of the, of the valuation is clearer. Yeah. Um, how much of that is Forge itself involved 
in picking and choosing which companies it wants to support because you have one loser and everybody will talk about Forge, right? So uh, what sort of due diligence is in place? Um, you know, what sort of guarantees? What does Forge do to make sure that every one of its uh, investments creates a brand name around that, uh, that, that if it's a Forge invested um, platform, uh, it will be good? Yeah, so it is, you know, it is a FINRA broker dealer and it is an ATS. Uh, but like in any FINRA broker dealer or any ATS, uh, it's not an investment bank doing due diligence on the companies. So they're only facilitating trading. So that's not the okay. role. Okay. And, but it's been able to avoid, um, you know, adverse uh, reactions or uh, adverse, um, you know, deals. Uh, that, would have, uh, that would have affected the brand of the company or of, of the platform. Absolutely. Right? So the companies that you want to be traded there, that they are uh, basically backed by top tier VCs because you know the top tier VCs have done a proper due diligence. They're not responsible for due diligence, but that's basically how commercially you make sure that you have really good companies there. Yeah, so therefore, it's the investor community that validates the investment and forges the platform. Um, in the last 18 months, you know, from after COVID started, um, it, the, the public markets have come back on. You know, you mentioned Palatier. Palatier went public last year. So, uh, and, and some, uh, suddenly public markets are just as attractive as private markets, or so it seems. Um, give me a sense of how you think the dynamics works uh, between the two now, to right now. If you look in terms of the returns on the private markets, and, and you basically do two graphs, you do a graph and you see who entered on the public market and the returns they had, and you enter the same companies and you see what those that have invested early in the private markets and what kind of returns they've had, the picture is very clear that the returns on the private markets are, are way higher. And, and now, obviously, it should be because there is less liquidity, there is more risk. Uh, so, so basically, the fundamentals work there really well. That hasn't always been the case. You know, if you remember Facebook in 2013, um, a lot of investors went in on a too high valuation the IPO came and it went straight down. And that could, that could have almost killed the private markets, secondary private markets at that stage. It didn't, but you know, it, it, there was a, quite a lot of uh, you know, trust lost for a year there. Uh, now, that's, you know, that's when you have three companies uh, which are unicorns and one is too heavily you know, a part of, of the overall total sum. Now, when you have 400 and start to basically build the indexes of how all these 400 companies have gone, you start to have actually really strong data points. So for, for today, today, there is a no-brainer that you know, the returns are higher on, in the private companies trade. Now, in order to buy in private companies, you know, it's a different mindset than in, in, in the public because, again, there's way less information. Even if we have $9.1 billion of transactions and all that data, it's still way less than in the public markets. So the, the skill set for somebody buying in the second market is different on the buy side than in the public markets. How is the culture of the, of the skill sets expressed in different, um, you know, geographies? Uh, you know, Chinese money, um, you know, anything above 200 million, not a problem. You go to Southeast Asia, they tend to be so much smaller. Uh, U.S., uh, again, it's uh, West Coast, East Coast, um, you know, it's, it's different. Um, how the cultures in each of these um, different ecosystems represented on something like uh, Forge? Yeah, so I would say in, in, in general, um, you know, in terms of institutional investors, there are way more secondary funds in the U.S., only specialized in buying private uh, market shares. So that is really a U.S. phenomenon. 
now, having said that, uh, you know, basically taking the risk, you know, in the Middle East, in Hong Kong, in Singapore, in actually buying, you know, a private company from a family office, uh, for instance, is, is definitely there. And, and the willingness to do that is definitely there. So putting a bet on it um, outside of these secondary funds is, is very, very strong um, in Asia. And that's one of the reasons why Forge wants to expand, you know, to, to Asia before Europe. Now, in China, especially, uh, the price discovery for private market shares has been very complicated. So whatever is being sold on, on the Chinese private markets, uh, you know, sometimes has been seen as, you know, being pushed too much on the sales side and in, in, inflating, uh, you know, basically the price too high. So, so having a platform with a lot of more data points is actually very, very, very welcome. So, so it's kind of difficult to uh, generalize, but I would say in China, the price discovery mechanisms of Forge are very, very interesting. And, and for the whole buy side in Asia to get access to the absolutely most interesting US uh, Silicon Valley companies is very, very interesting. So there we see some of the kind of short-term um, things that we, I, I think will happen in Asia in the next 12 months. China, no matter Forge or any other company, as you know, the model needs to be tweaked and needs to be uh, really well, really well uh, personalized. Um, so I, I think it's too early to, to say, you know, that big vision, how it's going to work in China. Uh, all we can say is that without doing anything at all, uh, we already have strong interest, um, basically just by word of mouth. And, and that we managed to trade some of the uni Chinese unicorns, both uh, on the sell side and the buy side. What is uh, True Global Ventures investment in Forge? And, and you mentioned Tomasic, you mentioned uh, Wells Fargo, that's a bank. Uh, you know, um, other traditional uh, banks or exchanges that who are in, uh, invested in Forge, um, just the profile of the investors themselves. So that's the three main ones uh, that, that I mentioned that came in in, in this round. Forge is, is, is really, you know, big uh, for us because um, we invested originally in SharesPost, which is part of, of the merge, uh, way back in 2010. So we have invested in 2010, 2011. 2017, 2018, and now in March 2021. So we've actually invested five times uh, into the company. So, so, so same there from an exit point of view, um, you know, we, we were looking at, you know, should True Ventures one, two, three, or four, you know, exit anything of this? And in the end, obviously not four because we just invested. TGV three has not exited anything. TGV two hasn't exited anything. And TGV one actually some of our partners because you know they are coming out of age uh, now. They've been uh, with us for 10 years. We basically bought, bought them out um, um, uh, 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 to basically stay on the cap table uh, of Forge. We, we really believe that this is just the start of the beginning, uh, even if we've been invested in the company for 10 years, for the, all the reasons we mentioned. Amazing. Uh, you know, Dushan, always great to catch up with you uh, because I get an insight of uh, what it feels like in the venture community. Um, you know, and and uh, and the things that are making you excited, which are going to be redefining the industry. Now, uh, what's interesting here is that you you mentioned that you are, you know, that the way uh, True Global Ventures is invested is uh, gaming, AI, uh, FI, and infrastructure. Now, FI and blockchain, how is that different from infrastructure and blockchain? Give me some names uh, in terms of uh, traditional financial institutions that you're invested in, uh, or is it traditional at all, uh, you know, FI and blockchain? Uh, why do you have that category? Both AI and, uh, you know, infrastructure can go across verticals. The infrastructure can serve, you know, many different areas. Identity, to give the example, 
can be a wonderful solution for, for Forge, for instance, when they do more cross-border payments, as much as it can be a wonderful solution for the NFT trading that we were talking about. So, so uh, clearly, you know, it's an infrastructure play that can be helped in many different verticals. And sometimes, you know, the competence of our investment committees, those who know financial services would also know infrastructure. Uh, but we have decided to uh, give it a certain, um, a different angle because infrastructure in itself always takes longer uh, in terms of building it up and growing it. So we, we believe that from a vertical point of view, uh, that kind of patient, patience is needed when you build up infrastructure as opposed to let's say gaming where you can see results quicker. So we wanted to have an investment committee of 10 people. We have only solid infrastructure competence so that they are actually patient enough when we build up those infrastructure companies. So that's mainly the reason. Dushan, this conversation can go on. I'm going to be able to catch up with you uh, in a short while uh, when I see the, you know, the NFT um, uh, revolution uh, work its way through. And I do want to uh, speak to Yetsu on the technology front, on, on, on the frontier of his uh, business and, and the technology just taking him forward. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. Take care, Manuel. Cheers. Bye. Thank you for listening to Radio Finance. For more content, visit the Asian Banker website and follow us on social media.